it to be a monster. I didn't even know I was one at first. And sometimes I miss those days. I've never killed anyone, in armour or otherwise, or captured anyone, virginal or otherwise. My family are herbivores. No one ever believes that. I think it's the teeth or the scales. But I am a monster. I must be. Because here I am, in chains. In this specially made dungeon. Made for those like me. I came quietly when they brought me in here. I almost regret that. How docile I was then. When she first came to visit, I believe it was out of boredom, or perhaps curiosity. I don't suppose she'd seen a thing like me before. But she spoke to me, not at me. She spoke to me. At first, our conversation was, as far as I understand these things, fairly trivial. Small talk, but no less pleasant. To be asked who I am, oh, I am, well, it's a novelty. As we grew more used to each other, more comfortable, she stayed longer and talked more. She began to read me stories. I like that. I tried to tell her a few of my own in turn. And she grew bolder, or fonder, or both. She stroked my snout, and she told me I was beautiful. She told me I was beautiful. She said my eyes were stars and that my scales shimmered like the sunlight on the ocean. I've never seen the ocean. Is she beautiful? I wouldn't know how to tell. Princesses have never really been my thing. She is kind and clever. And when she appears, things are brighter. One day, she kissed me very gently. And then she cried. I didn't understand at first, but I knew that I had failed her. She didn't come back for a week. A whole terrible, boring, deadly, heart-wrenching week. And when she did, she cried again, but in a different way, as if she had failed me. It took time that day, but she told me the truth. She had let herself believe that I had been enchanted in some way, 
that, that a curse had been put upon me? In short, that I might be a human prince. I can't believe she assumed I was a boy. I mean, honestly. But she was my friend. And she was sorry. And I forgave her for her foolishness. The next time she came, she was serious, but no longer sad. We will just have to find a different way to set you free, she said. I have to admit it was a beautiful idea. The thought of spreading my wings again into flight. To unfurl, rise. To simply move where I please. The possibility of it was maddening, wonderful, and beyond belief, of course. Of course. Tantalizing. And she was on edge with it as well, I could feel it. Why, I wondered, was this of importance to her? Because I know what it's like to be in prison too different look on her face then. Oddly strong, undefeated. Not really a princess look, to the best of my scanty knowledge. Perhaps I have been making assumptions too, all this while. We carried on as before, for a time, though increasingly serious. More stories and confidences shared. There was a strange sweetness about it. And I can't deny I enjoyed my time with her. Yet there was always this pressing, needling sense in me of something bigger and greater that now seemed possible. The almost promise of freedom in what she said. The image dancing in front of my eyes, which so delighted and frustrated me that I felt I might die. One day, she came and she told me that she had an idea. And her eyes, as she said it, I didn't understand her eyes. They sparkled with an excitement that she would not explain. But beyond that emerald gleam was something sadder and deeper. I cried, and I did not know why. I didn't see her again alone. Instead, some after some days, some men came, and they laughed, and said that the princess had taken an odd fancy to me, and that I was to be her pet. Instead of this dungeon, I was to live in a pretty cage in her apartment. A silk-draped, gilded cage, <coughs> like her. I was to be moved in time for the coronation of her brother as king. I was to be presented in a parade. In due course, I was tied and hoisted and moved. It was wearying and uncomfortable, because I could not, of course, be permitted to make my way there, my way there myself. Instead, I had my wings bound. I was in turn tied to a cart and manoeuvred through corridors not designed for my bulk. Humans can be so impractical. Finally, I was placed, well, more or less dumped, 
on silk cushions in my literally gilded cage. She had better have a good explanation. She never explained in words as such, and yet she did explain. She said such cruel things when her attendants were around. But in the brief moments between, when the bats returned, that look came in her eye, and a snatched apology was given. And then, for one crucial moment, near dawn, us both awake, attendants sleeping, she reaches through those gold bars and to the collar fitted around my neck. She has a knife, and for one terrible moment, I think she intends to free me through death. No, as, as she slides it under the collar and cuts almost all the way through the leather from the back. From the front, nothing looks amiss, unless you were to get too close, and no one's going to do that. The next morning, the parade. Noisy and overbright, but humans, like everything else, will have their fun. A good number of gasps at my presence, led by her on, I kid you not, a pink silk leash, studded with jewels, attached to doctored leather collar. I have to admire her style. And it was, I admit, somewhat gratifying the stir we caused. I found myself craving, enjoying it almost. I saw her toss her pretty dark hair and incline her prettier chin towards the crowd. She felt it too and was intoxicated like me. We could be so wonderful, so praised. Such a strange sensation. On the point of freedom to see the beauty of the cage. She broke the spell, not me. She turned briefly and caught my eye and said, quietly but firmly, now. She turned back and a few seconds later I felt the sharp tug that she gave. I pulled back against her and beat my wings, underused and shaky though they were. They did not fail me. The collar snapped and I saw soared up and up and away from it all, away from her. There were some shouts, but the only one I could pick out was hers. Play acting to convey her innocence, I guess. I hope so. I hope so. In the wide, open sky, I dance giddy on my freedom. This is what I was born for. I may see all the oceans of the world now, and all the lands. I no longer belong to the ground, to the dungeon, to the cave. I no longer belong with her. I couldn't take her with me. You understand? Just think of the stories that would be told. The dragon capturing the princess. They would hunt us down with their bows, 
and arrows and swords. But some nights, nestling in the snowy mountains, I think of her, and I hear that cry. Was I supposed to take her with me? Did I betray her? I don't know. And the not knowing chafes at me like the chains I used to wear. I will go back. I must go back. And so I do one night. She's there on the battlements. And she sees me. And she does not hesitate. Just over the gate, she says, and climbs on. I rise gently and she clings tightly. It hadn't occurred to me that she might be scared of flying. But she is. Scared, but determined and brave. I set her down gently outside of her cage no more. And she kisses my snout once again. Goodbye. I beat my wings, stronger now than sure. They catch the air currents, and I move up, higher and higher, and fly to freedom. By Stephanie Graham. This landscape's white, hard, unrelenting, slippery, without shade or vegetation. His feet skid wildly, searching for perches on the shiny surface. A strange surface now he looks more closely. It is not entirely white. There are faint swirls of colour within, a pattern like the memory of veins. He is not himself. If he is not himself, then who the hell is he? Where was he before? By an effort of will, he remembers the selection of his former lives. Firstly, his last, his most recent life. He is part of a chain of men who creep, so weary they can barely trudge, across a blinding crust of ice. Beneath this surface lies snow to a depth of 15,000 feet. Antarctica. Long ago they finished their last square of chocolate. After that, they ate the dogs. Between them they've lost several toes, one of the men has lost his reason. All know they are dying. Nevertheless, their mustachioed upper lips remain metaphorically and actually stiff. <laughs> Farewell letters have been written. He imagines his wife, Marianne, back in Blighty, sitting open the white envelope with her ebony paper knife. Her face a beautiful blank as she reads the news of his demise. She'll bear his loss well, and bring up their child to be an English gentleman. I volunteered because it seemed best. Of 
for our marriage, he'd said before he left, addressing the curve of her half-naked and indifferent back, the ruby clasp of her necks encircling pearls, the glimpse of her flawless face in the dressing table mirror. He'd remembered the hard white crust of their wedding cake. Clutching the knife together, they could hardly saw through it. Later in bed, he'd attempted to explore the frozen miles beneath her surface. The coldness of that embrace. No, she wouldn't miss him. What about an earlier life then? He remembers a sultry room with shutters closed, where slatted shadows fall across the bed. He and Marianne lie and sweat after love. In this life, he is black. His arm curving across her bleached body is like an extra shadow. There is a sound of horses' hooves. He knows she will betray him, yet he is so overwhelmed with torpor that he cannot rouse himself to run away. And another life, one that happened centuries ago. He stands by the arched window of a tower, a tower that overlooks the plains of Aquitaine. He and Marianne are playing chess. As usual, her appalling husband is out killing things, boars, ducks, heretics, who knows? Her tall white headdress is made of sculpted linen folds. Her long finger pushes forward the black queen. She looks up and smiles at him. Her troubadour. He cannot help but love her. At the same time, he's not blind. He guesses that she has another lover in her sights. He knows the signs. The dreamy look the colour of the new favour that flutters from the jewelled girdle. He picks up his lute and sings. Lives have but a little span. Love lives on in spite of time. Let me love you, Marianne. Love me, dear one, if you can. Hope lasts longer than a rhyme. Turn not from me, Marianne. But when she smiles at him, her eyes are cold. And before that, long before that, there was another life. In a hot white town, a woman entirely shrouded in black, bearing a glazed water jar on her head, walks down an empty street. Music, stringed music, slithers and drops note by note from a window. The window is a black velvet space of nothing, surrounded by a glare of white. Beneath her burqa, Marianne's hips undulate to the beat. How perfectly her allure radiates through the enveloping black. He recognises that little curl of her hand, the only part of her that he can see. Helplessly he follows, his fingers just touching the hilt of his dagger. He sees the shadow moving in the shadow. He anticipates death. All that was the past. Now, this is now. 
But who is he? He swivels his eyes, which seem to be on either side of his head. A head that feels as broad as his body. They are so far apart, these eyes, that he has two quite different views at once. Now he sees the stony promontory on which he walks is set deep in a glade of soft green oak and beech. Who cares? The really big question is, how many legs has he got? <laughs> Can there really be six of them? He tries to look down, but it's hard. He has the sensation of being armoured. And talking of arms, branched arms seem to protrude from his head. Then there are these other emanations which wave before him. Ferny floaters. Could they be antennae? Might he have become a lobster? A land lobster, presumably, since he is not underwater. Creakily, he swivels his head, looks back at his shiny blackness, a hint of glossy chestnut, and glimpses his dinky little pincer feet. Now he knows what we, he has become. Of course, he is a stag beetle. <laughs> There's little time to ask himself why he is now Lucana's service after so many lives as Homo sapiens. He suspects that someone up there might be trying to make a point. <laughs> little time, because at this moment a great bird lands beside him, beside him skittering on a slippery white stone. Black feathers, black eye, black beak agape. His life as a stag beetle will be a short one if he doesn't act now. What are pincers for if not to fight? He leans forward and grabs a scaly leg, squeezing like a car mechanic. The crow gives a startled cry, then heaves and flaps herself into the sky. And now our hero remembers something else. Once in every lifetime, he has been given an overview, a chance to see things clearly, an opportunity not to repeat. He looks down and sees that he has been walking over a statue, a marble representation of Aphrodite. He can even see the pedestal from which the statue tumbled onto the forest floor. His crow has carried him high enough to notice that the pedestal stands in a little grotto in a glade of what looks like an old park. Now, as the crow swoops lower, still pawing angrily, it is possible to see that the statue has the perfect, the regular, the utterly divine features of Marianne. Beauty turned to stone. And he, a lonely sad beetle, has been crawling over her smooth white marble flesh, clambering up the dimpled slopes of her familiar bottom and down the curve of her delicious thighs. All this he sees in an instant, and then that angry open beak confronts him again. If she weren't so busy squawking, the crow would already have snapped him up. There's only one option. And that's to release his grip, to fall, perhaps to die. But now that he is falling, 
and buoyed up for a moment by a kindly current of air. Our stag beetle feels a little stirring in his back. The unfolding of another power. Miraculous papery brown wings appear. He can fly. Jerkily, like an aeroplane driven by an elastic band, he circles and lands once more on Marianne. He alights on her smooth shoulder, against which he has so frequently, so yearningly longed to lean. How often has she coldly turned this shoulder towards him? Her body is without scent or savour. But out there, beyond her, the forest is rich with a rotten stink of decay. This is what I am for. He lets go and rolls down into beech leaves, leaf mould, welcoming loam, and the rustling bustle of the forest floor. He must forget everything and follow the purpose of a stag beetle that, after six years in the larval stage, emerges into the world with only six weeks of life to live. In those six weeks, the stag beetle has but one purpose, the pursuit of the female, successful consummation and impregnation. He is a sex machine, a beast propelled by lust. This is real, thinks the stag beetle, except that he cannot think anymore, he has become pure beetle. <laughs> he catches the faint and gingery whiff of a female. He rises into the air, looking like a saint in an old painting, flying upright and awkward, with cloak-like wings outspread and limbs extended beatifically, little claws like hands, ready to bless. Our third story, and the last one before the interval, will be Ballerinas Across the Andes by Owen Booth, and be read by Adam Diggle. Owen writes short stories, scripts, and plays. His proudest moment was having 49 of his words performed by Sir Patrick Stewart at the epic finale of a corporate video. <laughs> Adam graduated from the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts in 2009. Since then, he's mainly worked in theatre and voiceover. His credits include Nick Bottom in A Midsummer's Night Dream, Launcelot in The Merchant of Venice, Lenny Small in A Mice and Man, and Happy Loman in Death of a Salesman. Adam. <laughs> Ballerinas Across the Andes or The Great Ecstasy of Werner H. by Owen Booth. We lost the first girl before we even got on the boat. <laughs> We'd been stuck out on the Argentinian Pampas for a week, waiting for the steamer that was going to take us up the river. We spent our day sitting on the hotel porch drinking pisco sours and staring into the vast landscape as the ballerinas smoked cigarettes and told obscene Russian folk tales. 
It was Svetlana who bolted, of course. Blooming, nervous Svetlana with her pale, wheat-coloured eyes full of the Ukrainian steppe. Maybe something out in all that immensity reminded her of home. Her note said she'd run away with one of the local capybara herders. We never saw her again. She was one of the lucky ones. It was the early 1980s, the age of miracles. And Werner H. was the world's second most famous German film director. He was the man who had persuaded 500 death row prisoners to act in a full musical version of The Sinking of the Titanic. (laughs) Who had wrestled a dolphin to death for a film about environmental destruction. (laughs) Who declared, The universe is absurd. My role is only to try to challenge that absurdity. For his latest film, he was attempting to transport a troop of Russian ballerinas over the Argentinian Andes into Chile. On foot. At the height of military tension between the two countries. It would be a sort of sequel to, sequel to his earlier hit, Across the Alps with Midgets. Nobody was sure where he got the ballerinas from. The rumour was that he'd won them in a game of poker with the East German ambassador. Whatever the truth of it, by the time we'd reached the foothills, we were already down two more girls. One taken by giant otters during the five-day jungle riverboat journey. The other killed by a poison arrow. And the rest of the company were starting to get nervous. I appreciate the artistic intention, said Ludmilla, as we loaded up the llamas in the shadow of the 12,000-foot peaks. I'm just not convinced by aesthetic and social value. <laughs> Unbalanced. Ludmilla was the prima ballerina and de facto leader of the troupe. She smoked more than any human being I have ever met. You are right, she said. Uh, you know about these things. I wasn't really a writer. I just answered a job ad at film school. Script assistant needed, incredibly dangerous project, orphan preferred. <laughs> And here I was, loading film canisters onto a herd of llamas named after the 1978 World Cup winning Argentinian football team. I'm not sure you can necessarily put a value on works of art, I said, patting Ricky Villa the llama on the shoulder. I was beginning to suspect I was in love with Miller. Miller with her sturdy Siberian knees and magnificent cheekbones of the people. Ludmilla, whose beauty could have launched a thousand tractor factories. <laughs> was all she replied. <laughs> Hector the llama herder drank his mate and kept his counsel. It took us three weeks of slow climbing to reach the 15,000 foot high Juanita Pass. The weather was terrible. And we lost four more girls and two guides on the way. Our director was living up to his formidable (coughs) reputation by throwing daily tantrums whenever the climate or the light or another death came between him and his vision. These mountains are an obscenity, 
He screamed into the wind. They are the geological manifestation of moral terror. Nature is a dog that keeps returning to its vomit. And so on. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was clear that he was getting some spectacular footage as the ballerinas battled against the elements. There was no script as such. Every evening, H and his ancient cameraman Dieter planned the next day's shots while the rest of us sat around the fire eating roast guinea pig. Dieter had been with H for 25 years. One afternoon, as we paused between shots, I asked him why. Better to follow the dream of a madman than no dream at all, he said. As for the ballerinas, I couldn't help thinking Moscow was probably glad to see the back of them. For all their beauty and talent, they were a demanding, surly bunch. They missed their mothers, and vodka, and good shoes, and the magnificent Moscow subway, and they made sure everyone knew it. Also, Ludmilla kept sleeping with me every few days when she was feeling homesick, leaving me thoroughly confused. One morning, I came across H, as I was returning from a surreptitious visit to Ludmilla's tent. It was a few minutes before dawn, and he was tracking the flights of a huge condor through the telescopic sight of an antique German army rifle. Would it be a sin to shoot it, you think? He said, as we watched the birds soaring against the dead white of the mountaintops. But that finally get God's attention. I said I wasn't sure. <laughs> he blinked and lowered the rifle, as if noticing me for the first time. The condor floated away into the half light. 300 years ago, travellers crossing the Alps wore blindfolds to avoid being driven mad by the sight of the ungodly sons, he told me. Now we must adopt their methods. <laughs> and so the next day, blindfolds were issued to the entire crew. <laughs> by sunset, we'd lost another guide, <laughs> two more girls, and three lambs. <laughs> now, if you want to cross from Argentina into Chile without worrying about things like military checkpoints, passports, visas, and filming permits, the only route is over the O'Higgins Glacier. Then you have an easy path down to the tree line and then along the old Inca Pass to the foothills and the coast. The only problem is no one has ever made it across the O'Higgins alive. It's three miles wide and 30 long. It's a frozen sea of jumbled, jagged ice and hidden crevices. Hundred mile an hour winds howl down its length from the 20,000 foot peaks of Mount Mert above. At night, its unfathomable depths are said to sing with the souls of the dead. Entire brigade of Chilean army lost down there in 1972, said Ludmilla, as our party considered the horrifying spectacle at dusk. Also, planes. We've been struggling to get this far for the best part of a month. Altitude sickness, exposures, rock falls, lightning strikes, blizzards, snow blindness, and suicidal depression had thinned our numbers considerably. For H, it was now a battle of wills. Whatever demons he'd come here to face, they proved themselves worthy adversaries. 
He started every day by screaming quotations from Nietzsche at the mountains. He filmed the exhausted ballerinas performing lectures on the sublime as they waded through the waist-deep snowdrifts. He declared himself disgusted with the universe. When we spotted the avalanche rolling down the valley towards us as we made camp that evening, no one was very much surprised. <laughs> that night, we slept under the brilliant frozen stars. After the last survivor had been dug from the snow, there were 11 of us left. The tents were gone, along with Irina, Yolana, the three Tanyas, and the last of our guides. We had two llamas and a week's worth of food between us. Lying next to me in the sleeping bag, Ludmilla smoked furiously and stared at the Milky Way. I told her I'd never seen such a huge sky before. <laughs> you people see nothing that is not in your own image, she said bluntly. Everything speaks to you of yourself. In the morning, Hector, <laughs> the llama herder, had disappeared, taking the last of our provisions. He left us poor Ricky Villa laid down with film cans, while H climbed a low ridge behind the camp to survey the route across the glacier. We held an emergency meeting without him. The situation was impossible. We all agreed. We'd all given everything. There was no shame in turning around now. Finally, <coughs> Dieter spoke. Loyal, beautiful Dita, who had followed H across deserts and through jungles into combat again and again and never once complained. Dita, who had given half a lifetime in the service of H's vision. If you go back, he said. <laughs> there was a crack of gunshot and the sound of a bullet ricocheting off rock. We all looked. H was 50 feet away, aiming his rifle squarely at Dieter. We don't go back, he shouted. <coughs> it was a disaster, of course. Within two hours, we were hopelessly lost among huge ice boulders and thousand-foot-deep crevasses, with no way of retreat, even if H had allowed it. By that point, Masha and Katya had already fallen to their deaths. <laughs> Little Natalia followed shortly after. <laughs> we spent eight days wandering through that monstrous maze while the weather threw everything it had at us. We sucked snow for moisture. We slept huddled together in soaked, frozen sleeping bags. We lost poor sweet Martha to hypothermia and beautiful Oksana to a reoccurrence of malaria that, ironically, she picked up on the pampas. Galena got frostbite on her toes that turned into gangrene. Unwilling to accept a life without dancing, she bravely hobbled out into the snow one night while the rest of us slept. Then there was only four of us left. H kept on filming. He directed Dieter to shoot roll after roll of Ludmilla and I stumbling through the snow. To stop Ricky Villa from walking away in the dark, he tied himself to the beast, running a rope from Ricky's halter to his right ankle. During the day, they shuffled along together like the last surviving members of a chain gown. Only in the immeasurableness of nature can we find our own limitations, H insisted. And only then can we discover our preeminence over them. 
And then, on the seventh day, a snow bridge gave way, and Dita was taken from us. And with him, the camera. H knelt down in the snow and wept. Embarrassed, I bowed my head. Even now, as much as I hated myself for it, I couldn't help feeling that Paul somehow let him down. Every victory is denied to me, he cried, tearing at his hair. Fortune spits in my face. Nature conspires with fate to insult me. I am cursed by God to wander the earth eternally toward it. At that, noble Ricky Villa, startled by the outburst, or just exhausted with it all, suddenly reared up and threw himself into the crevasse. <laughs> it took H about three seconds to realise he was doomed. He looked down at the rope around his ankle, back at us, and opened his mouth. Hi! He said. And then he was gone. Ludmilla and I stood at the end edge of the crevasse, looking down into the brilliant blue depths for a while. Und wenn du lange in einer Abgrund blickst, she said finally. What does that mean? said. She took a drag from a cigarette and then flicked it into the abyss. We watched it tumble away from us. You stare into the glacier too long, she said. Eventually, glacier stared back. <laughs> a week later, so the story goes, two people walked out of the mountains near the Chilean border town of Maldonado. Foreigners, a man and a woman. They went into the first bar they found and started drinking. They didn't stop for three days. <laughs> and then, they disappeared. It takes 30 years, they say, give or take, for the glacier to give up its secrets. 30 years for a wrecked plane, or a camera, or a llama, or a man, to make the journey from below the shadow of the mountain to the glacier front. Needless to say, I recently started paying careful attention to the international news. See, I've got this great idea for a new film. All I need is some ballerinas. <laughs> <laughs> I've been fishing this lake since I were knee-eyed or water boatman. Perch is what I usually catch. The way they hook on and come out all red-thinned, furious, all wide-eyed and shiny-striped is magnificent in its way. People ask me, what is it about fishing? But as soon as I get into it, they turn away again, bored-like. Well, I've seen a thing lately that would keep them listening for a little while longer. There's a young girl been coming to the lake on the other side from where I sit. She can't see me, but I can see her. And she comes down to the water, dips her toes in, then her legs, slips off her clothes and goes right in. Happened a few times now. So I've been going fishing a lot more often, I don't mind admitting. <laughs> the wildlife is gorgeous, I tell my wife. The birds! The, the, the swans. 
And I'm not the only one that's noticed. Mike comes down a lot more often too. Says nothing, but nods at me and sits further off beyond the reeds. I notice he's feeding the birds his bits of bread and bacon, what he usually puts on his hooks. He's not so much fishing as waiting to catch a glimpse. There's something else, too. A big swan that comes in the evenings, ploughing up spray like he'll empty the lake. He stands up out of the water, flapping out his feathers, telling us he's top cod. So there's me, Mike, the big swan, and if we're lucky, the girl. And then, last week, I seen it. Or thought I did. Just off in the reeds, the girl, and that big swan on her, cloaking her with his wings, fanning them at her, hard, his feet sliding and clutching her. I can't be sure what I'm seeing. There's so much swan. And underneath, is she struggling? I couldn't tell. Went off ashore. And so, well then, I, I couldn't tell. I didn't stay to fish, so I went back, stopped off at the pub, and Mike was there too, which was unusual, so I asked him, Listen, Mike, you seen it then? Seen what? Today, at the lake. Seen nothing, mate. <laughs> oh, come on, you're there as much as I am? Just zip it, keep quiet about it. But we should tell somebody. And then Mike steps up to me, right in my face, nose to nose, and pushes me suddenly, like, thump, Mike who's never moved more quickly than it takes to give me a nod over from the far pitch at the lake. Mike, whose most excited speeches last all of two words, even when he's landed a record perch. I, I'm so surprised that I, I wobble backwards and my pint spills over me. I reach for the table and then the whole lot of us nearly come down. But I catch myself and lean forward again. And Mike is there, in my ear now. He whispers at me, teeth all gritted. Leave it to me, you butter. But we've caused a commotion, and the landlady says, Hey, oi, boys, not in here. Outside in the playground, if you must. <laughs> so I leave, and I start to go home. But at the end of the street, right there, are two of those community support officers. So I go up to them. I tell them what I thought I saw. And they look at me, the beard soaking into my shirt, and they hear the story of a swan and a girl... And they just shrug and ask me where I'm headed and offer to escort me home. <laughs> when my wife sees me, she asks me why I'm in the state I'm in and starts to have a go at me. Oh, well, I can't be bothered, so I end up on the sofa. All night, I'm thinking about the girl and the, and the flapping wings. And in the morning, I tell my wife I'm going fishing. How about I come too, she asks the one in a millionth time she's shown any interest. It's still early, early enough for there to be mist on the water. And my wife says she's not even dressed. The lake's no place for a woman, I say, trying to make it sound like a joke. Not what I've heard, she says. Well, what do you mean? Rumour has it Mike has called himself a little lady of the lake. Reckon I should check you haven't been catching any water nymphs of your own. Daft, I answer, and I leave before she can say any more. Now I'm angry. 
angry at Mike for his silent, secretive ways, for not telling me, any, me anything about it. After all the years we've been keeping each other company. I don't know what I expect to find at the lake, but I go through the motions of setting up my pitch. Get the hook and rod, bait and line, and yeah, I won't boil with it. When across to the left of me, I hear something in the reeds. The mist is rising now, and there's a gentle ripple in the water. And I see it. She's naked again, and she reaches out from the shore. Her belly is pale and oval and dips into the water she enters the lake. She begins to swim to the other side, and I look to where she's headed, and I see Mike, and he's standing there under a tree, and he's holding a shotgun. Mike! I shout, but he raises the gun and points the barrel towards the lake, towards the girl, and I shout again, No! Look out! As if I'm in a children's TV show. And then he swings to his left and fires into the reeds. I ducked down, even though the gun wasn't aimed anywhere near me. And when I look back at the lake, the girl has disappeared. But out of the shallows, behind the reeds, four white swans rise up, their necks outstretched, their feet scrabbling at the water. And those wings, eight white wings curving and flapping and battering the air, but the big cow, he ain't with them. I leave everything, the rod on my gear, and start running around to where Mike is standing. It's boggy and slippery with mud, and the reeds block a full view to the further shore, so I can't be certain I'll find him in the same spot. But he is there, staring back to where I've come from. And now I can see that he's watching as the girl emerges from under the water, close to where she first slid in. She looks back for a moment at the two of us and then disappears out of sight. I didn't get it, said Mike. He wasn't with the others. You have to stop, I say. There's other ways. Mike turns to look at me, something haggard about his face. I tried to tell someone, I said. And how did that go, Mike says, knowing the answer. We stare back at the water. Then I say, there's another way again. My wife was suspicious, of course, catching me kneeling at the cupboard under the sink, ferreting amongst the bits and pieces there. Amazing the range of substances you can find in a few household bottles of cleaning fluids. That oven stuff would take your face off. Anyhow, I, I spun her another yarn and found what I needed eventually. Mike got to work with it and came back down to the lake with his bread and bacon, made sure it all got within reach of the big car. So, here we are, at the lake once more, watching the water, waiting. And then we see it, the swan, floating out from the reeds, trying to rise, but he falls back, lopsided, and flounders to right himself. He throws back his neck between his wings, head swinging from side to side, rubbing slime from his beak. His wing feathers are khaki, clogged. And I can hear something, a, a faint song, a call. I turn to Mike. What's that? I say. 
swan for a moment. It's flailing, failing, its body dragging lower in the water. Mike looks at me. He turns to go but calls back over his shoulder. Forget this, he says. The important thing is after today we got the lake back in order. Not being so sure. What can I tell people about fishing now? Do I say that I go to sit quietly to get away from it all? That sounds harmless. But the truth ain't so harmless. Because I know, really, that the line and the bait and just a little bit of poison, they're all there in the water, waiting for something to stir. City Girl by Melanie Wright, read by Grace Cookie Gans. Melanie White has published stories in Londonist, Send Magazine, and Liars Lee, as well as art journalism. She edits Shooter Literary Magazine, which launches later this year. If interested in contributing, there's a website address on the program. Grace graduated from City Lit in 2013 after innocently signing up for just one radio drama course. Titania and Hippolata, numerous, numerous short films, voiceovers and roleplay for UN recruiters have followed. She also holds a BMUS from Birmingham University, is a classically trained soprano, soprano teacher and choral animator. Grace! City Girl by Melanie White. An hour outside Napier, the Art Deco town in New Zealand's Hawke's Bay, there is a sheep farm snuggled in the green crevices of a landscape like an upturned egg carton. Beyond the rounded peaks and ridges of the steep earth folds, the dark blue of the Pacific glints beneath a southern sun beneath a sky as clean as a bedsheet, freshly washed and blown out smooth. Each morning, the farmer rides out with his manager, Sean, and we ride with them on horses, mountain-bred and more sure-footed than fathers. Sabine is a chestnut and a former racehorse, Sabine Turbine, I think of her and she sidesteps up vertical slopes that would make stabled horses back home buckle and slide down to the thin stream weaving along the ravine floor below. I give Sabine her head and try not to interfere as she powers me up. This is a creature with more mountain brains than I. Today, we are on a mission to find an injured sheep a ewe with a uterus prolapsed after lambing. I ride behind the farmer, followed by a Canadian couple, Brian and Jen, 
and a laughing Dutch blonde named Rika. Brian has never ridden before. Having been coaxed out at the last minute, he's still wearing his pyjamas and struggling with the reality of unpadded saddle leather. At home, this would never happen. A novice off the lead rope and in such hazardous, hazardous terrain, conjuring injury and litigation and expense. It is not that the farmer has more relaxed codes. He has faith in his horses, trusts them, and knows that they understand their responsibility. The sheep are speckled over the hills in every direction, and having mounted the top of a rise, we follow the farmer's homing instinct along the rocky ledge to the east. Whenever we approach a quivering herd, they scatter clumsily, stumpy legs jerking beneath a mass of bulky wool. Our group is the perfect example of magnetic repulsion. We could ride into a throng of sheep and space would clear round us instantly, like hot oil in water or hair recoiling from a flame. The farmer sends one whining dog out at a time with a high clear whistle. His pack of four never take their eyes off him and he calls each one by name to let them know they're on their mark. The chosen one streaks off, coursing over the undulations until it seems like he'll keep going to the ocean. But somehow he hears the next call and drops flat or turns or draws his invisible net round in a wide arc to gather the sheep together. When we finally spot the ewe, she looks like she's trailing a red sweater with the sleeve turned inside out. She's waddling heavily up the opposite hillside, her rear end puckered and open like an obscenely botoxed pout, muddy blood matting the wool of her hind legs. We stay put while the farmer and Sean pick their way down and up to her. The ewe is driven into a small triangular pen built into a corner of the boundary fence for the men to return to her later and she stands alone beneath the shade of a gnarled tree as we swing round to take the perimeter road home. The level ground is strange and easy after the morning, and we talk more on the three-mile track back. The farmer is right-wing, denounces AIDS and homosexuality, favours capital punishment, law like a noose. It seems as if he hasn't talked with anyone who argues in a while, but I tried to be respectful. He is old, from another land. He seems to like me, even though I don't agree with him. You're an intelligent girl, he tells me, and you're a good rider, which pleases me more. His attitude is grandfatherly, but still, I feel embarrassed when our legs press together with the sway of our horse's tandem gait and I try to ignore it rather than deliberately move away. The farm is becoming hard for him to run, he says. He is in his seventies, which surprises me, and much of the heavy work falls to Sean. The farm has been his whole life, he says, and he surveys it with the fierce love of ownership and with just a little fear. In the afternoon, 
Brian and Jen prepare lunch at our cabin. We drink a bottle of wine and Vika breaks her resolution to quit by smoking my cigarettes. I have come on this trip to slip out from beneath the weight of a stifling city, to shake out my life like a dusty rug, and I'd been hoping that going away would amount to more than mere avoidance. So far, I can't say whether I've actually achieved what I wanted, and although the beauty of the country thrills me more each time I take a walk through the ferny forests, or hike redwood trails inhaling eucalyptus and pine, a melancholy whisper reminds me that all of the beauty is tinged with the sadness of leaving, and that none of it is mine. These are the first people I have shared more than a few hours with in New Zealand, despite the many warm and, and open people I have met, and we sit easily together, the right balance of sociability and space. You're good at being by yourself, my friend Lindsay told me a few years ago, but you're not so good at being with other people. So I breathe the fresh outdoors air like a remedy and tuck into succulent rosemary fish with these friends. Later, the farmer saunters up the path to find us still sitting around the picnic table. Once he's checked who plans to ride out with him again tomorrow, I ask after the you. Did the vet come? I ask him. And he laughs with the pleasure of setting me straight. Nah, he grins at me. Sean went out after lunch and slid her throat. I try not to be such a city girl, but stupidly I feel like I'm going to cry and I concentrate on swallowing the lump, nodding like I understand. The others carry on talking and when my ears clear, suddenly the farmer is mentioning that he has cancer telling us about his prostate and a biopsy and a trip to the hospital. I'm stunned by how easily he says this to us, a group of young and careless travellers who have come to ride over his land. How easily he tells us that he is going to die. And I feel, the inter and I feel all the immediacy of the day, of life in the morning and death in the afternoon of the heat of an animal's blood and the raw fact of its pain. Earlier, as we ride home, the farmer asks me if I want a gallop. But don't let her go completely, he warns me. You won't be able to stop her. I try not to look too eager and trot ahead of the group, contained, until Sabine and I are clear enough not to set the others bolting. I try not to let excitement transmit down the leg. I try not to let excitement transmit down the reins like a phone call flashing down wires. But joy is surging through my blood and Sabine shoots off, careening round blind turns and sending the clatter of hooves ringing through the valleys. I keep holding on to her, just for a minute, and then I let her go.
continued race. Before the final story of the evening, some notices. The liars will return, clean shaven, on the 9th of September, yet another supermoon, with high and low. Submissions are closed, but are still open until the end of the month for October's Halloween-themed Slash and Burn. Details of this, along with all of the years remaining themes, videos, recordings from previous events, are on the Liars website. And so, our final story of the evening. We'll be naked by David McGrath, and we read by Charlotte Worthy. David McGrath has small whoop. <laughs> David McGrath has won the Green Press short story competition. Story Slam at the Royal Festival Hall and was highly commended in the Manchester Fiction Prize 2013. He's been published in Litro, Open Pen, Words with Jam, Sophology and Earthless Meat, Melting Pot and the League's Weird Lies Anthology. Charlotte trained at the Oxford School of Drama. Her theatre work includes roles for the National Theatre of Scotland, Wilton's Musical Hall, the Arcola, the Bush and Theatre 503. Charlotte's work in radio includes BBC drama series Chain Gang and The Private Patient. She's also a narrator for RNIB. Charlotte! Naked by David McGrath. The prospect of naked women was why Leary sat naked on his bicycle, surrounded by a battalion of dick. <laughs> there was dick everywhere. Big brown dick, little seahorse dick, monstrous horse dick, growing up shower dick, bendy dick, worn out and broken dick, wrinkly and grey dick, up and coming dick, fat dick, skinny dick, long dick, short and stubby dick, Everywhere he looked, Dick. <laughs> he couldn't even appreciate the small number of naked women because he was too busy unappreciating all the dick. <laughs> and when he did see a naked woman, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was a fan of vagina, but playboy vagina. The neat and prim vagina well-maintained and given constant attention. The vagina at the naked bike ride looked like Predator. <laughs> he was half expecting a three-pronged laser to come out of one and vaporise him. He suspected if a dick did, did manage a venture into one of these vaginas, there was a 50-50 chance it wasn't coming back. <laughs> a chance he would unfortunately, have taken, considering he hadn't had sex in 26 weeks. The female of the species sensed all of the no-sex from him. They tasted it in the air around him, heard it in his desperate, high-pitched laugh. All of the no-sex had turned him into a weird and empty man-thing, who stayed up late at night and trawled YouTube for girl fight videos. Hot Latina catfight was his favourite, followed closely by Black Girl vs Russian Ho. 
<laughs> While the girl fights outside nightclubs had more attractive girls, he preferred girl fight videos from the projects, featuring less attractive women with less to lose. Moreover, they were always better fighters due to growing up in poverty. <laughs> However, all of the girl fight masturbation was taking its toll on his confidence. He needed to get out there and meet women, pretend that sex was just another normal thing. That was why Leary ended up sitting naked on his bike in Hyde Park, surrounded by a sea of dick and the old vagina that refused to acknowledge the death of Disco. <laughs> Riders, get ready, shouted the naked steward through his megaphone. He looked like one of those wrinkled dogs. Sharpe, his comb over blowing in the wind, his balls brushing his knees. More and more people disrobed, flash stripping and packing away clothes in baskets and backpacks. The naked doubled. God, I hope none of my students are here, said the fittest girl he had ever seen in real life. At his side, completely naked, except for her rollerblades. Her body could have brought about world peace. <laughs> I have to do it, though. I mean, it's not every day you get a chance to rollerblade naked through central London, is it? <laughs> no, he said. It is not. <laughs> then thought, don't tell her she has a lovely vagina. <laughs> and his dick was like, do not tell this girl she has a lovely vagina! <laughs> and then he said, <laughs> You have a lovely vagina? <laughs> and his dick was like, Just join a monastery, you fucking moron! <laughs> but then the beautiful naked girl said, Thanks. You have a very nice dick. And his dick was like, What the fuck? <laughs> the Sharpay was on the microphone again. Please, could anybody not involved in the ride move back from the start and let the riders pass? Please move back. The start was a gauntlet of clothed perverts, photographers, and religious protesters with blankets on hand for any of the naked who saw the light and wanted to cover up. Can I hold on to your bike for the start? asked the beautiful naked girl. You absolutely may, Leary said. The naked lined up in one long row. They were naked on tandem bikes, naked on unicycles, naked on skateboards, naked on roller skates. There were naked joggers and naked people on penny farthings and about 1,500 other naked people on bicycles, all in body paint and masks, sprayed with glitter, beaming, nude and proud. The sun was shining and everybody was happy. Leary cycled on, the beautiful naked girl holding onto his bike amidst 2,000 happy and naked people rolling down Piccadilly. Shop owners threw out chocolate bars and drinks People cheered, and young boys all looked grateful for the biology lesson. Sometimes people just needed a laugh. Naked people on bikes were funny. In the mighty name of Jesus, one of the religious protesters shouted, Repent and put back on your clothes. Weren't Adam and Eve naked? 
shouted the beautiful naked girl. You preposterous people, the protester shouted back. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honoured her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. Fuck you, <laughs> shouted the beautiful naked girl. The protesters had heaven in fifty years to keep them going. They were sure of it. The naked were not sure of anything and just wanted a little bit of happiness now. They were not ashamed. They felt they were telling the world they were there, human, flesh and bone. In ancient times, rites of passage involved going out into the wilderness and coming back with the head of a wolf. Nowadays, it was getting the monthly rent together for an overpriced bedsit in Clapham. <laughs> Leary smiled at the Holy Joes and forgave them. It must be tough, having to be anti-everything all the time, begrudging in the name of love. The Holy Joe smiled back, because Leary and the beautiful naked girl were going to hell. <laughs> the beautiful naked girl was frowning because of the exchange. Naked wasn't enough for her anymore. The naked moved on down Whitehall, past Big Ben, and over Westminster Bridge. The beautiful naked girl sulking all the while. This is shit, said the beautiful naked girl. Let's get out of here. Okay, said Leary. They put on clothes and went back to Leary's flat. Leary could not believe his luck. This was exactly how his wildest dreams went. They drank some wine, took their clothes off again, with the exception of the beautiful girl's rollerblades, then had sex. Uh, uh, did you do your homework? The beautiful girl screamed. Uh, uh, did you do your fucking homework? You didn't, did you? You didn't do your fucking homework! You didn't do your fucking
Leary did as he was told and left his flat. <laughs> naked. He sat down in the hallway where he could hear the beautiful naked girl snapping his DVD collection and throwing his plates out onto the street. He heard her crack cups under big stomps of her rollerblades and break his table in half. He heard her upturn his bed and break his windows. He heard her rip up all of his clothes and tear all the pages from his books. She beat his fan against the sink and exploded pots of jam and pasta sauce against the wall. She searched through his drawers and found his photographs. Who's this? Your fucking girlfriend? She shouted. Then he heard, then he heard her rip them up. Ugly bitch! His neighbours came out and asked if everything was all right. <laughs> Leary said it was. <laughs> and they listened to the beautiful naked girl destroy his laptop and phone, shred his money and flush his wallet down the toilet. She tore down his curtains and ripped his posters from the walls. She called his portfolio shit and set it on fire. <laughs> And when there was absolutely nothing in his life she hadn't destroyed, and Leary sat naked in the hallway, surrounded by his worried neighbours, she opened the door and peeked her head out. I'm very sorry, <laughs> she said. It's fine, he said. It's all absolutely fine. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, brings our evening to a close. The rose has dropped its last petal, so do be careful on the way out and don't prick your finger on any spindles. Before you go, though, please thank our beastly authors and our beautiful actors for another enchanted evening. Thank you.